0: listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit brockportfirstbaptist.org. This week's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 2 verses 37 to 47. And it's following a point in Scripture where Peter pretty much laid out for the people before him what had just happened and what they had just partaken in. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: And thank you, Kurt, for that reading. We're continuing today in our series on Acts. Uh, We're in Acts chapter 2. We're finally going to finish up this chapter. Um, Everything we have talked about over the last three weeks here in worship, the last three readings, all happen on just one day, the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus' followers. They start speaking in tongues. Peter goes out there and preaches a barn burner of a sermon. 3,000 people commit their lives to Jesus. I'd say that's a pretty effective message, right? <laughs> like that's, that's pretty good. The new believers are baptized, and that's when things start to get a little weird. We're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's all pretty standard church stuff, Right? Uh, Teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayers, we're doing like all four of those things together today. But these new Christians go a step farther. Verse 43. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all As any had need. You know, we had our basics class here at church last Sunday, uh, Brockport Baptist Basics. That's our class uh, for new folks, anyone looking to join the church, get baptized. We talked a lot about baptism in that class Uh, the history of it, uh, what it means, uh, immersion versus sprinkling. But in all we said about baptism in that class together, I don't think we covered the part where after you're baptized, you sell all your stuff and go live on a commune, (laughs) right? Like, we missed that somehow. This is a radical step these first Christians take. Selling all that they have, pooling their resources together, giving to each according to their need. If Fox News was around back then, the headline would have read Socialists Invade Jerusalem, right? Like and I'm I'm only half kidding with that. This is radical. This is radical. We've been talking about stewardship here at our church all month. Um, our big ask at the congregational meeting a few weeks ago was for everyone who supports our church to consider a monthly gift to the building fund. If we asked you all to sell your stuff so we could put it in a, a joint bank account and give to each as they had need, you would be right to be a little skeptical, right? Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> yes, you'd be right to be a little skeptical. Baptism for these new believers wasn't just a religious thing. It's not just a public display of faith for them. Baptism for these first Christians had social, political, and economic ramifications. I think of John the Baptist baptizing people in the Jordan River. The Jordan River is the place where the ancient Israelites entered into the Promised Land centuries before. It's where the ancestors of John's people came into this land that God had promised them. It was a spot of national pride. For John to baptize people in the Jordan River at a time when the promised land was occupied by the Romans, that was a political act. It's subversive. It's no wonder they took this guy's head. In the basics class last week, we talked about the very first Baptists, our ancestors in the faith. Um, The Baptist movement emerged in England in the 1600s. It was this time of wild political and religious turmoil. Uh, You had King Henry VIII on the throne, who for the first half of his reign persecuted the Protestants. Then King Henry decided he wanted a divorce, but the Pope said no. So he snapped his fingers, and the whole kingdom was Protestant. They switched. Then, uh, about 20 years later, Henry's daughter Mary comes to the throne. Mary was Catholic. She rounds up and executes all the Protestant church leaders, and it's back to Catholic. This is, by the way, how she got the nickname? Bloody Bloody Mary. We know that one. Then, a few years later, Mary's sister Queen Elizabeth comes to power, and we're Protestant again, back and forth, back and forth. All that happened over a few decades. The original Baptists were Christians in England who had the audacity to say, maybe the monarch shouldn't get to decide where we go to church. Those very first Baptists went down to the river, they renounced their baptisms, whether in Henry's church or Mary's church or Elizabeth's church, they got re-baptized into their own church as Baptists. That was a political act. It was considered treason at the time. When we get baptized, we are making a public declaration that Jesus is our Lord. If Jesus is our Lord, Caesar is not. Henry is not. Mary is not. Capitalism is not. And that's where I might have struck a nerve. We don't live under a king anymore, thank God. There's no monarch in America. But if our country did have a king, if there's one power, one system, one force that is all encompassing, that competes with Jesus for lordship over our lives, it's our economy. Capitalism, the the market, money, Adam Smith's invisible hand. Capitalism is our state religion, it touches everything we interact with, everything we do. The dollar is our God. But at baptism, we were baptized into a radically different economy. If you want a quick way to gauge your discipleship, if you're looking for, you know, a measure, how am I doing on the following Jesus front, this question up here on the slides is one of the best questions to ask. How often does your faith cause you to bristle against capitalism? How often do you have to wrestle with your allegiance to Jesus on one hand and the almighty dollar on the other hand? If this is a question that you grapple with regularly as a Christian living in America, you're probably doing okay. You're in it. You are in the struggle of discipleship. If this question is completely foreign to you, if you've never even considered this, you might have another God in your life. You might be serving two masters and not even realizing it. Few weeks ago um, i had lunch with a young couple um they're roughly at the same place aaron and i were like 10 15 years ago um newly married young starting careers thinking about settling down and starting a family and one of the questions this couple is wrestling with as christians is where are we going to live where are we going to live right now they're in an urban area Um, They love the diversity there, the culture, all the great restaurants, the art. They've established themselves in that neighborhood. They've built careers. But as they think about buying a house, property values, as they think about starting a family, having kids, and schools, the pull toward the suburbs is real. Plenty of young urban professionals have to navigate this. You make your mark in the city, you start your life there, then when you finally start to build some wealth and want to settle down, you leave the city. Move out to the suburbs with the better schools, bigger houses, more playgrounds. Of course, when we do that, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, when we leave the city, we take our tax money with us, and we leave those neighborhoods worse off. For followers of Jesus, this is an ethical dilemma. Where you live is a discipleship issue. You might choose to stay in a poorer neighborhood with struggling schools as a radical act of discipleship. That's what this couple is navigating right now. This is where it gets real. We've got to bring this down to earth. I know that none of us are about to sell our houses, pool our resources, go live on a commune. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not naive. I know that's not going to happen. Um, I'm not going to do that either, by the way. Uh, I like my house. Um, <laughs> the early church would probably ask us why not. They'd, they'd probably judge us for that. But I'm a realist. Even if we don't have the guts to do what these first Christians did to take that radical step. There are plenty of practical ways we can begin to embrace the countercultural economics of the early church. I want to highlight three things, three areas. You can think of this almost as like three fronts uh, if, if we want to start thinking about how to put this into practice. And we're going to label these fronts personal internal and communal, personal, internal, and communal. Let's start on the personal front, our personal economies, and talk about how to prioritize generosity. In our sort of economic system, generosity is usually an afterthought. The driving force of business The market, personal finance, is not how much good can I do, it's how much can I earn. What profit can I produce? Whether we're talking about Fortune 500 companies or small household budgets, the goal is to turn a profit, make money, balance the books, and then, if there's anything left over, then maybe we'll do some good with it. Give to charity. Donate to a a soup kitchen or or whatever. This is why most people don't give to charity. It's an afterthought. It's something we do at the end with what's left over, if there's anything left over. Once we pay our bills, purchase necessities, spend a little bit on ourselves, maybe save some, you get to the end of the month and there's nothing left left. That is not a system that's set up for sharing. What if we started with generosity? Before we tackle the expenses, the investments, the demands, what if we started with the question, what impact do I want my wealth, my money, my work, my earnings to have in the world? What portion of my income do I want to set aside specifically to share with others? Is there a dollar amount? A certain percentage? Start with what you want to give, the impact you want to make, and work backwards from that. Churches will often talk about tithing. Um, tithe comes from an old English word for tenth, and it refers to the practice of setting aside a tenth of your income, 10% to give away. Living off 90% so you can give 10. I want to be clear on this, though, because a lot of people kind of misunderstand this. The Bible never commands Christians to tithe. Christians are never specifically told in Scripture you have to give 10%. That, That isn't in there as a command for Christians. But as a practice, if you are looking for a way a practical way to live counterculturally in our capitalist, market-driven system, figuring out how to live off of 90% of your income so that you can do something else with that 10% is a really cool place to start. Maybe you set aside a certain amount each month to put in a special account so that whenever you hear about someone in your life who has need, someone who's struggling, you've got a pool of money that you can just give to them. Maybe you pick a few charities to support some nonprofits that are doing work in the world that you believe in. Make that the starting part, the starting point of your financial planning. I want my money to accomplish this. Determine that amount and then work backwards and see what it would take to live off the rest. This is how Aaron and I approach our finances. Um, This is kind of how we think about giving, and it is amazing to see work being done in the world, stuff being done in your community, and knowing that you contributed to that. That's the personal front, prioritizing generosity. But there's also the internal piece. Because anyone can give. Anyone can be charitable, we can give all the money we want And still be lockstep in rhythm with our fallen, broken economic system. As Christians, we need to do the internal work of rethinking our loyalties. Rethinking our loyalties to the fallen economic system of our society. This could look very differently depending on where you're at. It could mean taking a lower paying job in order to have more time to invest in relationships. Uh, It could mean downsizing, taking on less side gigs so that you free up time for your family or for service. It could look like staying put in your current neighborhood. The world teaches us to sacrifice everything for profit, for the dollar. We're asked to sacrifice our time, our health, our well-being, our energy, our families. Is it time to say no? Is it time to set some boundaries and make some hard choices for the sake of our souls? Do you need to rethink your consumption in order to have a more just impact on the world? Do you find yourself buying items you don't need, with free next-day shipping. (laughs) Do you know where the stuff you buy is made? And what the conditions are of the people who make that stuff? For Christians, this is a discipleship issue. Maybe you've bought into some of the lies our society tells around money and security, the idea that profit is inherently good. That more is always better. The myth that wealth is a sign of good character, and if you don't have wealth, there's something wrong with you. These economic ideas shape every aspect of our lives and the people we interact with. And most of these ideas are not true. They don't work. You can't live in a society, you can't have a life of constant improvement where everything is getting better and better and better. It's not always up and to the right. Doesn't work, it's not sustainable. That is a one-way ticket to burnout and exhaustion. It's not good, it's not true, and it's not in line with scripture. Do that hard internal work of rooting out these ideas, Make sure your loyalties are aligned with Jesus and his way, not the way of the market. We following this so far? Awesome. third front, final front. I know we're way over time. We're almost done. It's okay. Take a breath. The third front we need to focus on is the communal. This is the one that's going to get me in trouble. Working toward systemic change working to transform the system in which we live until it is more just and more equitable for everyone. This is the part that's going to get me in trouble, but I have to say it. The economic system we live under is not divinely sanctioned. It is not divinely ordained. Capitalism did not drop down from heaven. Adam Smith did not write The Wealth of Nations Under Divine Inspiration. Uh, Capitalism is a fine system. It's better than some others. I'd rather live under capitalism than feudalism, for example. But capitalism is broken. Capitalism is marked by sin. It is flawed. It tends to concentrate wealth among the elites and often leaves behind the working class. Christians should not be defending any economic system. If you find yourself standing up for whether it's capitalism or socialism or whatever ism, you're probably doing the wrong thing. As Christians, we should always be at the forefront of pushing for change, lifting up the poor, and protecting the vulnerable, whatever system we live under. Christians were the first people in this country to advocate for public education. Did you know that? It was Puritans in New England who opened the very first public schools. It's a Christian idea. We used to champion the idea that every child has the right to a quality public education. Now, Christians are now the most likely demographic in America to send their kids to private schools, to pull them out of the public school system that we helped build. We were among the very first to advocate for programs like Social Security and Medicare, programs that were dismissed back in the day when they were first suggested as socialism. Anti-poverty measures like food stamps, welfare, if you read up on these programs, you'll find out that most of them were invented by Christians who were trying to change the system they lived in. We used to be at the forefront of workers' rights. Martin Luther King, when he was assassinated in Memphis, wasn't there for a civil rights march. He was there supporting sanitation workers who were on strike. Dr. King advocated for a living wage and a universal basic income. And they called him a socialist. And they killed him. Christians used to understand that not everything needs to be driven by profit. That used to be like a core value of the church. We used to be the ones challenging society's assumptions around wealth and profit and how to run an economy. Nowadays, we are now often the loudest defenders of the status quo. The biggest advocates for our broken system. If Christians in our country actually prioritize generosity If we were courageous enough to check our own hearts and examine our loyalties, if we were to reclaim our prophetic voice and work for systemic change, imagine the impact. I know this is going to make some of us uncomfortable, that's okay. As a Baptist church, no one has to agree with me, which is awesome. But there's a reason you don't hear a lot of sermons in America critiquing capitalism. We, we don't go there. We don't touch it. But I have really good news. If you disagree with me on this one, you have another option. If you want to emulate the Christians of Acts, if you want to do this stuff without actually having to deal with all the political and economic stuff, you have another choice. All you have to do is sell everything you have pool your resources and give it all to the poor. The choice is yours. Let's pray. God, thank you for the radical example of these first Christians in the book of Acts. Let their witness challenge us and motivate us until it transforms us. May their example expand our imaginations, broaden our understanding of what's possible. God, help us to see clearly the way we are serving two masters, the areas of our lives, personal, internal, and communal, where we still need to submit to your lordship. We ask for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.